Welcome to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's about the Bills and the beer. Now, here's your host, John Murphy. Hello there and welcome to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff, our 19th podcast. My name is John Murphy, the play-by-play radio voice of the Buffalo Bills. Anyone expect to be here? Anyone ever expect to be here? The AFC Championship game for the Buffalo Bills coming up this weekend? I didn't. I mean, I knew they were good. I knew they were a playoff team. I thought they might go deep in the playoffs, but here they are. Almost as deep as you can get in the playoffs. One game and they're in the Super Bowl. The AFC Championship game coming up Sunday at Kansas City. We're going to talk about that game a lot today on the uh, podcast. Hope you stay with us today. Going to have my buddy Eric Wood, the former Bills center, who still pays attention to what's going on with the Bills. He works on Bills Tonight and other Bills platforms. He works on the ACC Network during the college football season in the fall. He's got his own podcast. It's a good one. What's next with Eric Wood? Eric Wood will join us to talk about last uh, Saturday night's win over the Baltimore Ravens and what to expect this Sunday against Kansas City. Eric Wood coming up in a moment. In our third segment today, our beer guest, if you will, Liam Lahart. He is the founder of Porterhouse Brewing Company in Ireland, the premier craft brewer in Ireland, really the first uh, group to brew craft beer in Ireland. They started about 25, 26 years ago. Liam LaHart will join us to talk about that. He is also involved in the Dingle Distillery in Ireland, makers of fine gin and scotch whiskeys. We'll talk about that as well. You probably heard of Dingle, right? It's very popular in many parts of the country right now. Liam LaHart coming up in segment three on the podcast today. Well, let's start by talking about the Buffalo Bills and their victory over the Baltimore Ravens last Saturday night. It, I said a week ago on this podcast, I thought it would be, it could be anyway, a physical mismatch. Well, it was to a certain extent. I mean, the Bills chose not to run against the Ravens. Not that they really couldn't, but they recognized that Baltimore's strength defensively was run defense. They chose not to test that strength to go another way, and they did. And they wound up with the victory, right? Now, they only scored the one offensive touchdown in their 17-3 win over the Ravens, but that was enough to get it done, especially the way their defense is playing. Uh, The key play of the game, obviously, the 101-yard interception return by Taron Johnson at the end of the third quarter. Really a game-changing play. I don't know where that game goes without that play. And think about it. It was an amazing time for that play to occur, really. Um, Taron, you know, the Ravens are on their way to tying up the game at 10 apiece. And Taron Johnson instead takes the ball away and goes 101 yards. When you think about the play, when you look at the play, I, I really never expected him to run it out of the end zone from a yard or two deep and get to the other end zone. In fact, if you look at the play closely, I thought I saw him kind of make a motion as if he was going to kneel it down and take the touchback. He says he saw green in front, so he just started running, and he kept on running. Uh, And he went 101 yards, got a great block downfield from his teammate Tredavious White to spring him. But uh, it was calling the play. It wasn't until he got to about his own 40-yard line that I thought, oh, my goodness, he could go. It was just an amazing play. I got to nominate that as one of the top, what, three or four plays in franchise history. Even Josh Allen, after the game, immediately after the game, called it a franchise-altering play. And I think it shows an amazing sense of history for Josh to recognize that. Josh, in just his third year with the Bills, recognizes that that play and what role it plays in the history of the Buffalo Bills. Think about it. What are the top three plays, four plays in Bills history? Let me make some nominations. And if you have another one, I'll, I'll be willing to listen. I would put, and this is not ranking him, I'm just putting him in chronological order, but Mike Stratton's hit on Keith Lincoln in the 1964 AFL championship game has to be regarded 
as one of the key plays in franchise history, right? Bills won that game, their first AFL championship. Keith Lincoln, their best running back for the San Diego Chargers, leveled on a clean hit by Mike Stratton that just changed the game. That's got to be one of the top plays in Bills history. Here's another one, December 1973. Uh, That wasn't a playoff team, but O.J. Simpson's run against the Jets when he goes over 2,000 yards and the way that was replayed over and over again. And 2,000 yards was a major milestone then, still is. That was a remarkable feat, and that was a remarkable play. I think that is one of the top plays in franchise history. January 3rd, 1993, the comeback, right? The greatest comeback in NFL history. You know, Steve Christie's field goal to be Houston 41-38 in overtime. That wasn't such a great play, but it finished off the great comeback. And it has to be nominated, I think, for one of the great plays in Buffalo Bills history. Steve Christie's field goal to be Houston. And then you get to last Saturday, Taron Johnson's interception return. The Ravens headed to the end zone. They're at third and goal at the nine on their way to tying the game. And the interception just changes everything. And as far as plays in franchise history, I can't think of another play that had such a turnaround effect as Taron Johnson's interception return led the Bills to victory, their 17-3 win over the Baltimore Ravens. So now they match up with Kansas City. And the long, glorious history of the Bills in Kansas City in the playoffs, you know, this is the third time these two teams have played for a shot in the Super Bowl. Two of the charter members of the Old American Football League in the 1966 AFL Championship game, War Memorial Stadium in Buffalo, I was there. January 1st, 1967, I was there. I was nine years old. My father took myself and my brothers to War Memorial to see the Bills and the Chiefs. We didn't know what a Super Bowl was. Bills are playing for the AFL championship. That was what was important. They didn't put up much of a fight. Len Dawson and the Chiefs hammered the Bills 31-7 in that game, and the Chiefs go to the first Super Bowl, lose to Green Bay. The Bills miss out. They played an AFC championship game, the Bills in Kansas City, 1993. It was January 23rd, the AFC championship game. The Bills beat Kansas City 30-13 in Orchard Park for the right to go to Super Bowl 27. Joe Montana's last game. He leaves with a concussion. So there have been two memorable playoff games between these two franchises, the Bills and the Kansas City Chiefs. This Bills-Chiefs matchup, it's not going to be a physical matchup. I don't see it as that, as it was maybe a week ago. The Bills should be able to run the ball against Kansas City if they want to. And why wouldn't they, right? They're always seemingly available to pass the ball. The Buffalo defense held Kansas City to 26 points 14 weeks ago and gave up 250 yards on the ground. they got to make some adjustments there. Uh, The Bills backed up and uh, guarded against the deep passing game, and the Chiefs were known for that, right? Tyreek Hill and all those targets downfield. The Bills decided they're not going to get beat that way, but they did give up 250 yards on the ground. So they got to make some changes. And look, I believe the Bills are better now than they were three months ago. They're much better defensively. That's reflected in the numbers they've produced since the bye week against Arizona two months ago. This game, they'll have Matt Milano. He did not play in that game 14 weeks ago. Levi Wallace did not play. Dawson Knox did not play, and he's made a contribution the last few weeks. Harrison Phillips, others did not play 14 weeks ago against Kansas City. They are all available to play in this one, in the AFC Championship game. The Chiefs, of course, with that explosive offense, the Bills have to worry about that. They have to handle it, but I don't think they have to back off and let the Chiefs run roughshod over them as they did 14 weeks ago. And, of course, there's the Pat Mahomes question. Patrick Mahomes with 
Did he have a concussion? I guess he did. He's in concussion protocol. But by all accounts, it looks like he's going to play and play against the Bills. Should be a good game. I think it's going to be kind of an offensive fireworks game. And I think the Bills come out on top in this one, 28-21 the final. I think the Bills go on to the Super Bowl with a victory over Kansas City. Well, we got a good show coming up. Liam Lahart, the founder of Porterhouse Brewing Company in Ireland. He's coming up in a moment. But up next, Eric Wood, former Bill Center, keeps an eye on the Bills. We'll get his thoughts on last week's win over Baltimore and this week's game against the Kansas City Chiefs. All of it coming up on Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. Our guest is a familiar name to Bills fans. In fact, this is his second appearance on our podcast. Former Bills first-round pick in 2009. Spent nine seasons with the Buffalo Bills. He made the Pro Bowl in 2015. He was color commentator on the Bills Radio Network last year. COVID kept him out of that this year, but he works with the ACC Network. He is one of the co-hosts of the uh, Bills Tonight postgame show on the Buffalo Bills uh, Television Network. And, of course, he has his own podcast, What's Next with Eric Wood. We're live with Eric Wood. Eric, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. My pleasure, John. Anytime, brother. It's, it's good that we get you on because we had you on for the first in our podcast way back in, I think it was August. And a lot has happened since August. I feel like it's needed to touch bases with you, everything that's going on this year. Oh, yeah, no doubt about it. We got a lot we can cover. Um, let me start with this. Uh, around the league, there's interest in coaching vacancies and the filling of coaching vacancies. I want to ask you about a couple of bills, and I know you've talked with Leslie Frazier, who apparently is interviewing early this week with the Houston Texans. What kind of a head coach do you think Leslie Frazier, the Bills defensive coordinator, might make? Yeah, so I had Leslie Frazier on my podcast, uh, and and that'd be a great one to go back and listen to for the reason that I think he's a phenomenal leader and he's a calming presence. And for a guy that for an organization in Houston that's been through the ringer lately, they had the Bill O'Brien deal, and they gave him a little, probably a little too much power. And and, and hear me out, Murph. When you give a guy a head coaching job and a GM job, but only a three year deal. How does that make sense? Because then you're forcing him into short-sighted decisions like sending first-round picks to Miami for Laramie Tunsil. And and you you force guys into short-sighted decisions. That's why you either give them a 10-year contract in the GM gig as well, or you keep the GM gig separate from the head coaching job. But you get guys that can work together. So I think Leslie Frazier could be a phenomenal calming presence. And, and a phenomenal leader down in Houston. And, and, and I think that'd be on full display once people get to know him a little bit better. Can I tell you my quick Leslie Frazier story? Um, sure. This goes back at two years, and he's here as the Bills defensive coordinator, and we interviewed him, and I got to know him a little bit. And then one Saturday, my wife and I would buy, you know, six, a six-event season ticket to the Buffalo Philharmonic. And I, I would go to the game, just something to do in the dead middle of winter like we are now. And a couple of times I noticed Leslie Frazier's in the next row over with his wife. And I, and I got talking to him. And he's a he's yeah, okay, he's well-rounded, he's intelligent, but he's a complete man. You know what I mean? He's not just uh sleeping in the office at night worrying about football. I got the feeling that he is a, a a real complete person, and I like that about him. I see him coach that way too, as a matter of fact. For sure. And he also has a lot of credibility to him. Not that guys that didn't play in the NFL don't have credibility, but when they can also bring the knowledge of the game from an experienced head coaching perspective, as well as having been a former player on maybe the best defense of all time, the 85 Bears, he has a voice to him that people respect tremendously. Let me take you to the other side of the ball. Brian Dable, Buffalo's offensive coordinator, who many people myself included, expected would get a, a shot at head coaching with the, the Los Angeles Chargers. What do you think of them going elsewhere, and what do you think of Dayball's chances? 
you know, I think he's got a great chance. And what he's done from a developmental standpoint, working so closely with Josh Allen, and should all the credit of Josh's success be put on Brian Dayball? No. But there's a lot of people around the NFL realizing that if we can hire a coordinator or head coach that can develop our quarterback, that may be the most important thing about the hire in general. And so that's why Brian Dayball is so um, highly sought after. And, and I love Brian Dayball. I've loved him since he walked in the door. I've loved his uh, philosophies. He does a great job of calling plays to his personnel and not trying to make his personnel fit into a certain scheme. I think he's extremely well-rounded. He spent time under two of the greatest head coaches in football history in Nick Saban in Bill Belichick. And so I, I think he could be a great asset for an organization. Now, I'll be honest, I've never seen him in a meeting room. Uh, my career ended right before he came in. Now, I know him personally. We communicate fairly often. He's a great person, similar to a lot of the guys. There's a, there's a common theme with this Bill's coaching yeah. staff in front office. Oh, he's a phenomenal person. He's a great guy. He's a great ball coach. He's got a great family, and you could kind of run that deal with so many people on this Bills coaching staff, and Brian Dayball fits that mold as well. You know, when I think about Brian Dayball as a head coach, uh, I'll be honest, Eric, I have a, a personal uh, pet peeve about offensive-minded head coaches. I'm thinking of a few right now, Adam Gase, et cetera, who spend the whole game staring at their call sheet, not watching the game, calling plays. Now, look, Brian Gable may want to call plays, but I don't think he'd get caught up in that as a head coach. You know what I mean? He would coach the whole team, I believe. Yeah, it would be interesting to see what he would do in that regard. You know, uh, there's been a lot of head coaches that have called plays that have been successful, and we could we could name those as well. Yep. And a lot of it is about being able to handle that responsibility. And do you have a defensive coordinator that can kind of run the show on the other side of the ball? I'm thinking of a Sean McVay who gets hired at what, 32 years old. Right. I thought the best thing the Rams organization did was hire Wade Phillips as the defensive coordinator. Wade's a former head coach himself and an extremely experienced guy. You combine a Brian Dayball with a guy. Now, Brian Dayball is going to have ultimate say in an organization, you know, on the coaching staff, but you combine him with a guy with head coaching experience on the defensive staff that Brian could kind of lean on with this being his first head coaching opportunity, as well as a guy who can run the other side of the ball, then that allows you to keep the play calling in Dayball's hands. Eric Wood is our guest. Eric, uh, let's talk a little bit about the Bills now that we've gone beyond the coaches. And and last Saturday, 17-3 to win over the Baltimore Ravens. Just your general impressions. What did you think? Uh, I mean, the defense played great. They scared the crap out of me early. 45 yards rushing for the Ravens on the first yeah. drive, but then only 150 in the game. And that, that was something we saw so often in 2019 together, John, when we were calling games in the booth was – Early in games, the Bills' defense would take them a second to figure out an offense, and they might give up seven points early. They may give up three points. They may just give up some yards. But then they get to the sideline, they make adjustments. It shows how strong this coaching staff is once again, but it also shows the leadership of the guys on the team, the ability to be adaptable. It's, it's remarkable. But they put the clamps down on the Ravens defensively. I mean, when you include the pick six, they outscored – the Ravens themselves, they could have literally beat them 
just with their defensive points. And, and offensively, people will talk about it was a low-production game from Josh Allen. The running game didn't get going again. But when your defense is playing that good, and this is what we saw in 2019 a bunch, John, when we, when we had to defend the offense at times, when the, when the defense is playing that good, you don't need to be super aggressive offensively. And, yes, they continue to throw the ball, but, but they didn't need to, to ever take any risks. And the entire fourth quarter was pretty much crush this clock. It was no longer try and work the ball down the field, put up more points. It was simply let's get out of here and move on to the AFC championship game. No, I wonder – see what you think about this. Because I've been thinking – and I've been saying for a couple of months, one of the best things about the 2020 Buffalo Bills is how – diversified they are. They can win a game 17 to three with great defense. They can put up 56 points as they did against the Dolphins. It's almost like, and, and they had to learn how to do this. I think during the course of the year, uh, for, for example, on offense, how to play a strong running game as opposed to a passing game and vice versa. The fact that they can find a couple of different ways to win a game. Uh, the fact that we can't identify and say, this is how the bills need to play to win. I think that's good for them moving through what could be the final couple of games of the season. You're absolutely right. And as the Bills got healthier as the season went on on defense, especially at the linebacker position, but also getting those free agent defensive linemen in the proper rotation, Harrison Phillips coming off an ACL, you had injuries on the back end of the defense. Once the Bills defense got healthy, they were dominant again. They don't get they probably don't get enough credit for the success of the season just because the offense was so dominant. But in weeks 12 through 17, when the Bills really hit their stretch and just started pounding people by double digits over and over and over, the Bills were essentially a top five defense again, maybe top six. When you look at all the major categories, rush yards, pass yards, points for total yards, and all that, third downs, they were top five, top six in most of those categories. And so as the season went on, the defense played better and better. And, and I've told many people, great teams can beat you both ways. They can outscore you and they, the defense can win you games too. Because in the playoffs, it's one and done. And if you have one side off, the other side has to be able to hold the weight. And sometimes it's not just playing a bad game. Sometimes you run into a buzzsaw of an offense, of a defense, and the other side has to pick up the slack. And the fact that the Bills can do that this year, which they couldn't the previous year, is is absolutely monumental. We can't leave uh, Saturday's win over Baltimore without talking about the big play, Taron Johnson's interception. Um, I just wonder what you thought about that. And, you know, you played nine years here. I know you got a sense of Bill's history. It's got to be one of the biggest plays in Buffalo Bills history, regardless of how the season plays out, I would think, huh? Absolutely. I thought it was phenomenal. And maybe Josh heard it from somewhere, but in Josh's postgame comments, he said this could be a franchise-altering play. And I'm like, man, that's that's great from the 24-year-old quarterback. <laughs> you know, like to yeah. be able to – and maybe he heard it already uh, before he got um, <laughs> his chance to be on the microphone. I don't know if I want to give Josh that much credit. But, <laughs> no, it was it was, it was was a remarkable play. It was a great play by Taron Johnson. Um, stepped in front of it, read Lamar Jackson's eyes. Everyone talks about how great um, Josh Allen's been in the red zone over the past couple of years. Well, Lamar Jackson's matched him stride for stride. Lamar's been phenomenal in the red zone actually has thrown more touchdowns in the red zone. than I even think Josh has without throwing an interception until that play. So for Taron to be able to make that type of play, it also takes everybody though, John, and you know that it took them forcing them into a passing situation for that to be able to happen. You know, it all works together. And then Taron Johnson doesn't go score if you don't have Tredavious White out, out in front blocking him. Justin Zimmer was running pretty much stride <laughs> for stride with him. Yeah. You had guys out blocking as well. It takes a team to do it, but incredible play by Taron. 
want to ask you about uh, Lamar Jackson, Baltimore's quarterback. You share the Louisville uh, background with him. I know you're a big fan, and and I can see why. I wonder, though, if – well, I'm wondering if Lamar Jackson has already at least neared, if not hit, his ceiling, how good he can be in the NFL. What are your thoughts on that? No, definitely not. I mean, he wasn't asked to do a whole lot in the passing game at Louisville, and he hasn't been asked to do a whole lot so far. I think the, the previous three seasons have shown with only one playoff win in three seasons, but really dominant regular seasons, that they're going to have to add an element to their passing game to win it all. And so whether that's going out and getting some bigger receivers, some guys that can make plays down the field, Hollywood Brown and Willie Sneed are good receivers, but they're essentially the same small, like, you know, you're, you're, you're dinking and dumping to those guys. And, and, and they could take the top of, off the defense, but not if you have a safety back there. They can't go win jump balls. So do they add that? Do they uh, rep it more in the offseason, more pass routes down the field? I mean, with really no offseason, it's incredible the strides Josh Allen made, but it, it's hard for guys to work that, you know, work outside of what you're going to focus on during the season. And for them, it was going to be the run game again. Eric, let's turn our attention to this week's game, the AFC Championship game. Uh, all season long, people have, you know, they're the Super Bowl champions and people have deferred to the Kansas City Chiefs like it's a foregone conclusion that they'll go back. You you played under uh, Sean McDermott. How will he handle that? He, I, he does a great job of focusing his team on what's important. And the fact that the Chiefs are regarded as the AFC favorites, I don't think will matter, matter much in the Buffalo locker room. What do you think? No, he might play on the word the underdogs again mentality or whatever it may be. He may play on that. But Sean's all about just – getting better week to week, focus in, lock in on the preparation, ignore the outside noise, enjoy it, enjoy the time. It's a fun time to be a Buffalo Bill right now. He won't be telling those guys to have less fun than they are. Now, fun in 2020 looks a little different, or 2021 yeah. now. Those guys can't even go out to eat together. Right. So you can you can truly understand that your team's locking in when they leave the facility. But, you know, Sean is just absolutely phenomenal about day-to-day -day consistency from his own approach, which then rubs off on the rest of the team. I anticipate it'll be a big week of discussion about concussion protocol with Patrick Mahomes. As a former player, your thoughts, does the NFL do enough to genuinely protect players in concussion protocol to prevent them from doing more damage? They're trying everything they can. You know, it's, it's out of the team doctors, you have an independent guy, you have a concussion protocol, you have a baseline that was set in the offseason based upon cognitive tests that you did yourself. They're trying. I mean, head it's a violent sport. Head injuries will always be involved with it, and it is what it is. They're trying to police the on-field play to limit the head injuries, and they're doing as much as they can, I believe. And But I think the biggest key is taking it out of the team's hands because you can't have a team doctor getting pressured by the city and the organization to get a guy back on the field, you have to leave it to someone independent who's just nameless, faceless that can make a, a, an unbiased decision. And I'll be honest, John, when I saw Patrick Mahomes get up yesterday, I don't, I've seen that look on face from many teammates in the past. I hate it. I hate that look. You know, it's like that gazed eye, the glazed eyes kind of looking off into space. It makes me sick to even talk about, uh, but it's part of the game. And, you know, he doesn't appear to have a concussion history, a history of repeated concussions. Right. So hopefully he'd be able to bounce back quickly from it. Last thing for you, Eric, what does a Bills victory against Kansas City look like? What's the path they need to follow to win the AFC title? 
Well, I'll, I'll start with first and foremost, I think the best thing they've done through two games is not turn the ball over. When you're talking about evenly matched teams, you look at two things. It's turnovers and touchdown percentage in the red zone. I think the Bills could be better with their touchdown percentage in the red zone, uh, You know, obviously last week. But then even against the Colts, they, they performed better than the Colts did. That, all, that really is what cost the Colts the game because they didn't turn the ball over either. So you got to score touchdowns when you get in the red zone. you got to stop touchdowns when you get in the red zone as well. When you look at the game from week six in Orchard Park uh, against the Chiefs, they were able to score touchdowns in the red zone primarily Travis Kelsey, the Bills weren't. They settled for field goals. That cost them the game. Can they score touchdowns this time, not turn the ball over? And then defensively, Sean McDermott said after the last game, if he could go back and do it differently, he would, and he couldn't wait to get another opportunity to play those guys. Their defensive approach last time was take away the big plays, which they did. They took away Tyreek Hill. Terrible production game for him, but they gave up. over five yards a carry on 46 rushes the bills only had 22 minutes of time of possession they only ran 45 plays in the whole game the chiefs had more i could look that up i I believe the chiefs had more rushes rush attempts than the bills did total plays and so when you look at that they've got to find a way to get off the field and i'm interested to see the strategy if they dial up more pressures or whatever they do to try to limit the limit the big plays in the pass game, but also cut down on the yards per carry the Chiefs were able to just nickel and dime them with over and over. That's the kind of analysis we're missing, Eric. It's great to catch up with you. I can't wait till we get you back next year. Thanks very much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure, John. I miss you, brother. Have another great call this week. Thank you. You're listening to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff with John Murphy. Our next guest to talk about beer is Liam LaHart. He is founder of the Porterhouse Brewing Company in Ireland. The Porterhouse is regarded as the originators of craft beer in Ireland. Liam, there's such a strong and and ages old uh, brewing history in Ireland, but it took a while for craft brewing to get up on its feet there. What what took so long, do you think? Okay, well, do you want me to go back to, um, (laughs) well, I suppose myself and uh, my First cousin Oliver Hughes um, uh, both lived in London in oh the early eighties when um, campaign for real ale was um, was going and, and uh, I suppose there was the what the, the there was the the various guys who were um, reviving uh, craft brewery and microbreweries as it was called then. So um, yeah, I suppose we we came back to Dublin and uh, we set up a, um, a small brewery in Blessington. Now, that's uh, I suppose craft brewing wasn't heard of then. It was uh, microbreweries, and um, so yeah, we, we we did that for um, for quite a bit. We we didn't last too long in that small brewery in Blessington, about three years. But we regrouped and we opened the brew pub in Temple Bar in um, 1996. Doesn't seem that long ago for me, but for your younger (laughs) listeners, that's probably a lifetime ago. But um, yeah, and that was um, really, really, uh, well, I mean, really good fun, but quite um, traumatic because after opening one brewery and, you know, 
for all intents and purposes, failed for various reasons. Um, you know, when, when I'm looking back on it and talk about 1996, it was great fun. But at the time, it was very stressful because apart from, you know, opening a bar and in as it happens, it, it, it ended up in Temple Bar, but we were in the edge of it then. And we just happened to uh, Temple Bar kind of came up to meet us rather than we being in Temple Bar in the beginning. Yeah. But and it's over the years, it became absolutely fantastic. The first couple of years were very tough trying to persuade people. Yeah. And when you're talking about Ireland having the great tradition of beer in. So we're talking 96, where if you know any of the you, you know, this is when tourism was beginning to happen in Dublin and especially people from the UK um, were coming over. It, you know, they just discovered Dublin and it was great fun and that we, it was a great town, great city to go to, especially, you know, coming over on a Friday evening, flying back Sunday evening. But the one thing that a lot of guys were surprised about coming over from whether, you know, any parts of England really, is that lack of choice of beer. You know, if you're going in, you know, what do you have on draft? And in reality, you had Guinness, Smittix, and probably Heineken, Carlsberg, Budweiser was actually quite popular at the time. But so you had probably a choice of two tree lagers, one ale, and one stout. And that was your total offering in um, when you came to the bar. Yeah. So quite quite restrictive. I, I read somewhere that when you started the porterhouse, you actually uh, you you would not pour uh, Heineken's or uh, or Guinness, right? And you wanted to set yourself apart from those popular brands back then in 1996. Yes, yes, <laughs> and that was we were the only, um, you know, whatever about not having Heineken, but you had Carlsberg or not, or you know, or maybe you had Budweiser, or maybe you had Harp was declining in those days. But a pub in Dublin not having Guinness, totally unheard of. And um, that used to, actually was when, um, you know, and we had Oyster Stout, Plain Porter and uh, Raster's Forex Stout. So, and the call used to be, can I have one of those Oyster Guinness, please? As, you mm -hmm. know, so the people were so, I mean, Guinness is a great product. Uh, it's a fine stout. And but to me, it's one you know, there was also Beamish Stout and Murphy Stout. But to the average guy in the street, guy in the pub, he could only associate the this black stout with a white head, it was Guinness. So, when what he meant to say was that the guy wanted to say, I'd like an oyster stout, but no, the, the, I, I want an oyster Guinness. So, I mean, well, yeah. the power of marketing, I suppose, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to give you a chance to talk about your cousin, your late cousin, Oliver Hughes, who you mentioned a while ago, and kind of the, the joint vision you both had for, for a brewery and, and several pubs all over the world for Porterhouse, huh? Yeah, yeah, that was, um, yeah, we, we, well, myself and Oliver, um, although we grew up separately, uh, we were, were the same age, uh, he he grew up mainly in the UK, but when he was a kid, you know, uh, was in his his dad was in the colonial service, so Somalia and Fiji, so quite a colourful background as me being brought up in a farm in Tipperary. 
So um, when Oliver came over, yeah, he was always brought a little bit of excitement with him, and he was that type of guy anyway. But I ended up, um, uh, didn't do too well in, in, in college. Uh, uh, they kicked me out after a, a year. So I ended up in London uh, because that was, uh, going from Tipperary to London now was fantastic. And um, I was working in the, actually construction down in London. <clears throat> Oliver was in college in St. Albans, North London. So he used to bring down his buddies down to, um, to we used to meet up. But we ended up going, you know, going into the city, going to the David Bruce's bars, the Frog and Firkin and down in Camden Town. And, um, you know, so Saturday afternoon, <clears throat> we, we had to go, uh, we used to, Oliver, come down into London and we'd, we'd head into the city and discover some real beers. Yeah. Uh, and brew pubs were kind of the way to go then but i suppose after opening the the brewery in blessington really one of the reasons you know it failed was because i suppose we were we were giving credit to probably people who had no intention of paying us in the first place <laughs> so when when we decided to open a brewery we said do you know something we, we are a brew pub at least uh, we're only giving credit to ourselves so the chances are we'll pay ourselves so yeah and, and that, uh, and that's how, I mean, I, I had been working in bars then. And um, so, yeah, I, would, I was very much front of house dealing with, um, yeah, and all the financial end of and dealing with the customers. And Oliver was very much the driver of what the customer wants. You know, he, and, and, you know, Oliver, you walk, and then for some strange reason, the bloody light bulbs in, this, in the corner of the bar used to go as soon as he'd walk in, and then he'd point out, Liam, look, this and can you change the, the and, and and various other aspects? Uh, our our the table was quite scruffy when he walks in, and uh, of course I'd obviously they're just after leaving. So he used to keep me on my toes and all the staff on their toes. But sure. he was Oliver was a visionary. He he saw things be you know before they happen. And, and I mean his biggest job was to bring me along with him because uh, yeah I would have been a, you know a traditionalist uh, well. In comparison, in comparison to him, I would have been. Yeah. I, I, speaking of traditionalists, I read this quote about uh, Porterhouse, uh, Porterhouse Brewing Company. It says, we like beers that taste like beer. Can you expand on that, what, what you mean by that? Well, I suppose, well, bearing in mind when I did mention uh, Budweiser, which um, is, a, I'm sure, is a fine beer, as a matter of fact, probably some of those very light lagers are probably the most difficult beers to brew consistently. Uh, in some ways, it's, it's easier to brew uh, a beer with taste in some ways, but keeping them consistent is another story. But yes, so in those days, there was very much um, bland beers. Uh, and so, and when people, you know, would taste, oh, What's that taste? Oh, there's a yeah, there's a, there's a bit of an aftertaste there, and you said, yeah, yes, that's probably hops you're tasting, or maybe it's a it's 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 some of the roasted barley we're using. Um, these are products that are in the beer that you're supposed to taste, and that is um, you know, as in when we were the, the the campaign for real ale at the time was all about taste because they were trying to get away from the bland beers. So we you know, our early days. Our education wasn't that. So, yes, we were all about the taste of beer and which was 
uh, you know, uh, hops and well, we 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 all know about hops now <laughs> right. since uh, since the craft brewing came along. You know, we 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 thought we knew our IPAs down in London on, and the, until the Americans got their hands on them. <laughs> Speaking of that, and the taste of beer, what what is the role, and maybe what role does uh, Porterhouse uh, with your beers play, and even Sullivan's, uh, you know, which is more of a traditional tasting beer than is is often brewed all over the uh, all over the world, including in the United States. Where's the niche uh, for for Porterhouse, and to a lesser extent, Sullivan, maybe? Well, I would often argue now that. Um, and especially, you know, we're now not a brew pub. We, uh, we, we, we rely on selling, you know, up to, you know, five years ago, five, six, seven years ago, we were just selling to ourselves our own bars and restaurants. And, but now we are dependent on the, on the, on the public to go into another bar and, and, and order our beer. And, you know, it's fine um, you know, and you're talking about brewing for taste, but you know, anybody, well, not saying anybody, but it is easier to brew a big beer with, you know, big hop taste and all that. And you, you say, oh, that's absolutely fantastic. And you buy one and then you go back to, because your taste buds are totally overwhelmed and you go back to uh, uh, something a little bit easier. Like we, we have to be commercial and um, it is, it, you we the reason we're going for oh, I don't know thirty odd years is because we are commercial. Uh, we have to pay the bills, and it's um, you know the, we so you have to find that fine line. You know, it's great bringing out seasonal beers, and um, you, you know they can be quite obscure and different and and big tastes. But people, you have to work out what people want and what people are willing to pay their five bucks for their six bucks their eight bucks for you know so um yes we you have to have an eye for being commercial as well hey liam uh, tell me about the, the bars and pubs you have you have one in new york city here in the united states right down in, in uh, downtown new york area we, we we have two in two in the same block down in the on, on the financial <laughs> district yeah okay. where well, the first one we got in 2010, right in the when things were falling apart all over the place, was and we, we were very lucky to get our hands on Francis Tavern, which is a uh, was a fantastic old tavern down um, on Broad and Pearl Street. It's historic, and, right? It's historic. Yes, yes. Uh, George Washington, um, uh, you know, uh, spoke to his troops there before they went off 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 to war, um, and. When we when we got that into 2010, it had been suffering for a couple of years. Just things didn't go right for it, and we we got it, and we had to put quite a considerable amount of money into it. Um, took on a good partner there, Eddie Travers, Eddie and Dervla over there. There, uh, they came along two years into we uh, when we got it, and within a year they had brought the turnover right up. And this brought us up to, and we were really um, knocking it out of the park. And then Hurricane Sandy came along and, uh, oh, what killed us. Um, totally uh, destroyed our basement and ground floor area. Um, it, and, of course, 
um, down in that part of the world, you can't get insurance for flood insurance. Sure. Well, you can for the upper floors, which is not of a lot of use to you. Uh, <laughs> When your main trading area is on the ground floor and all your uh, everything else is in the basement, so that um, that was very very difficult, and uh, only for the support of our our because we were getting back in action. You know, in two thousand and ten, the world fell apart for us, especially in Dublin. Not so bad in London, but um, in but I think it was two thousand and sixteen. The Sandy was, and. Um, but we, with the support from Dublin and London, uh, our bars and restaurants there, we got it back on track. And really, uh, Eddie and Eddie and Dervil have done a fantastic job, and uh, everything going fantastic uh, up to last March. Okay. Last thing I want to ask you about, Lean, is uh, the distillery, the Dingle Distillery. You're involved with that, and what's the yes. connection between uh, um, Porterhouse Brewing and the Dingle Distillery? Uh, anyway, well, where do you see that going? Um, well, uh, I suppose strictly, well, this was now, when we talk about uh, Oliver's influence on, on things and then, um, you know, he, he probably um, was probably, was praised for, for, for bringing it all along. Uh, but I have to assure you that I had a, a 50% uh, input into everything we did, except except Dingle Distillery. When Oliver brought this ideas to us, um, and uh, I have another partner in, in the brewery, Peter Mosley. And um, uh, of course, when, when, when the brewery was going fine, you know, Oliver needed to change things around. He, get, he used to get bored when things were running smoothly. He'd have to, uh, so he came up with this idea, I'll, yeah, we'll open a distillery. Okay, all right, that's an interesting one. Where are you going with this one? Uh, the one that I don't know an awful lot about whiskey. The one thing I know about whiskey is it takes, uh, uh, you know, by the time you distill it, you have to wait three, four, five years before you can sell it. To me, um, uh, and that's problematic. And, he, and so whatever about right distillery, and he wants to open it in Dingle. Now, Ireland is a small country, and you can get to any corner of it, uh, you know, within a few hours. But um, Dingle is about four and a half hours from Dublin. And uh, of course, we who live in Dublin think uh, that's the center of, um, of the earth. But uh, I said, four and a half hours down to Dingo. How can Peter be going down there? And I, I, all I could think of, so cash flow, distance, and you know, can't we open a distillery in, in the brewery? And so he said, Liam, you don't get it. And, you know, whereas I was aware of Dingle, and I'm, John, I'm not too sure whether you know where Dingle is. It's in an absolutely incredible part of the, the, the southwest of Ireland, out on a yeah. peninsula, uh, you know, next stop, New York. Um, even though I had been there, I never really appreciated it. And, um, you know, so we, we opened the distillery in 2012, and um, we and we were you know it, it took a huge effort because obviously the 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 economy was in shreds we begged borrow steals well we didn't steal but uh, <laughs> we, uh, we 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 it we found it very difficult we got our funding but it was the ongoing of um you know it's one thing setting up the distillery and getting you know your property or then getting all your equipment in place 
then the cash flow, the making of whiskey. And, you know, we were trying to ramp up the, uh, our distilling. We were, we were only distilling, however, half a dozen casks a week, really, in, in the early days. And when we tried to ramp it up, we found out it's bloody expensive because, you know, there's the mall of the labor and, you know, and, and the casks. You know, for instance, you know, most, maybe 70% of our casks may be bourbon casks. And they're, you know, we, we get them in from the U.S. because they tend to be reasonably priced, you know, about, uh, well, in English pounds, they'd be about 100 pounds. Yeah, so about 120 dollars. You know, per piece, but if you want to have a, a port or a sherry cask, which you need a percentage of those, they could knock it back, you know, 700 euros per cask, you know. And you, you say you wave bye bye to it, and I'll see you in four. And if you're doing a sherry cask, you're going to keep it for five years, so quite expensive. But we, we also have a, a, a four or five ta- uh, Spanish tapas bars. And um, of course, we used to have to seek out some fine wines and fine foods in the north of Spain and down around San Sebastian and that, but, um, and, and down to Barcelona. Tough jobs, somebody has to do it. But myself, <laughs> Oliver, and our partner, Lee Sem, used to have to go over regularly there. So we were in, wandering around Barcelona and, uh, and, look, you know, and lo and behold, it was early afternoon. Oh, we should probably go for a drink. So we spot this uh, a gin bar. What? So this is, say, 2000 and uh, about six or seven years ago. Well, what's a gin bar? Gin bar? Yeah, okay. I'm not sure, of course, we had to find out. Sure. So we go in and we order and we, you know, three gin and tonics. Well, what kind of gin? You know, so we went through the whole, you know, there was about 10 different gins and different tonics. And we, I don't know what we ordered, but we, the three uh, gins came up in, 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 in those fishbowl glasses with huge ice cubes. And, um, well, that's interesting. That would work very well in our, um, in our tapas bars. And, you know, because we have four in Dublin and one in London. Um, and so we brought the concept to London. And this was just the beginning. Now, in the US, it hasn't really happened, although it's beginning to happen now about your, your uh, craft gins and your small batch gins. But this was back five, six years ago. And we were at the right at the beginning of, of the gin um, explosion. And we brought our Dingle gin. And it's, uh, it's well, it, well, I put it like this, only for Dingle gin, at this stage now, we would have had to take on a strategic partner because we would not have been able to survive on producing whiskey and waiting, waiting for four years. And um, the Dingle Gin has been, is an absolutely fantastic product and it sells very well. Sells here as well. It's a great story about the Dingle and about the Porterhouse Brewing Company. Liam, thanks very much for being with us. We, we really appreciate talking with you. John, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. And I look forward to uh, getting over to New York very soon. I haven't been there in um, oh, nearly a year now. And I, I have a granddaughter over there that I need to see badly. Well, that's our show. That's our podcast, the 19th, believe it or not, Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. We've got another one coming up next week. We're going to keep going once a week as long as the Buffalo Bills keep going. And I really think that after this Sunday, 
I really believe they're going to have one more game to play. If you have comments, critiques, observations about our podcast, happy to read them. Send them to our email, Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff at gmail.com. That's one word, Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff at gmail.com. We will read them on the air if uh, they're substantive uh, comments and critiques. I want to thank our guests this week, my buddy Eric Wood, former Bills Center, still a focus in the Bills world. His work on Bills Tonight and other platforms. He works on the ACC Network during the college football season in the fall. Got his own podcast, too, and it's a good one. What's next with Eric Wood? Our thanks to Eric for joining us on the podcast this week. Thanks to my beer guest, Liam Lahart, the founder of Porterhouse Brewing Company in Ireland, the premier craft brewer in Ireland. He also is with Dingle Distillery in Ireland. Really interesting stories. Love talking with Liam. Thanks to him for joining us. Thanks to our producer, Pat Feldball, as well. That'll do it. We'll see you next week right here on Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. You've been listening to John Murphy and the Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's all about the bills and the beer. 